of Ecclesiastes. Aren't you so excited? Aren't you so glad to hear Solomon say over and over that life is hevel, futile, fleeting, meaningless? Weren't you encouraged last week as we examined uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and how he points out some of the perplexities and the pains of this life that we experience? Last week we talked about how this life is full of perplexities and pain. And without God, it is meaningless. We talked about how the book of Ecclesiastes gives each of us a dose of reality that we all need. Especially as Americans who are bombarded with entertainment and it's so easy for us to escape the real world and just make believe and pretend and get taken far away in your imagination with entertainment, with books, with activities. And Solomon gives us a grounding in reality as we read this book. He gives us a grounding in the reality and this book is so relevant to us today. After six months of going through a global pandemic where people's mental health, people are struggling, where, where people are discouraged and, and feeling discouragement about their life and meaning and purpose and work and plans and, and many of the things that they had going on. Many of our idols have been messed with. We've been confronted in many ways. And, and the book of Ecclesiastes meets us right where we're at in the mess. It meets us right where we're at, in our pain, in our perplexities. And it teaches us, it teaches us that life, we, we don't have life all figured out and in our box. And, and there's, all, there's things that happen outside of our box of what we think life should be like. And so today we're going to talk about the pursuit of happiness. This is something that Solomon himself did. Last week we looked at, we, I, asked, I started with the question, does your life matter? Does your life matter? Because as you read through the book of Ecclesiastes, you're going to have to ask yourself that question. You're confronted with, 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 with the question, does my life matter? Does what I do in life matter? And if your life matters, why? Why would you say it matters? What would you point to to defend that your life matters here? How you live and your existence here, why does it matter? So we're calling this series, Life Matters. Calling this series Life Matters because Solomon explains the matters of life that we experience, like injustice, like toil and struggle and work, like tragedies that happen, things that are frustrating in this life where we, where we feel a lack of fulfillment. He examines the matters of life, but then also he doesn't leave us. He doesn't leave us to the conclusion that our life is, doesn't matter at all. As a matter of fact, he does the very opposite. First, by getting our attention and saying everything's vanity. Vanity of vanities. Hevel, we talked about last week. What a, what a way to get somebody's attention. It's all hevel. It's futile. It's fleeting. All right? And so he, he gets our attention in the very beginning of the book. And then he expounds on how this life is futile and fleeting. As the New Testament tells us, our life is but vapor. Okay, or life is but vapor. Someone, someone said, does that mean my life is just a just a fart? Because it stinks. Because it stinks right now. Your life is but vapor. It's fleeting. It's futile. It's going by. 
The things of the world is passing away and the lust thereof. In 1 John we're told, don't love this world. Don't love this world or the things of this world because the world is passing away and the lust thereof. But he who does the will of God abides forever. I'm sorry, parents, about that. <laughs> so last week we looked at some of the reasons why your life matters. And I pointed out that, I, that we have a creator who made us with purpose. So our life matters. We, we will give an account to our creator when it's all said and done. So our life matters. How we live matters. We will spend eternity somewhere, either in heaven with our Creator or in everlasting torment apart from our Creator. We will be rewarded according to our labor. Those of us who are Christians, our labor is not in vain because there is a resurrection and there are rewards that our Lord will give out to those who've been faithful and those who've been diligent. So, our life matters. Okay? And in the book of Ecclesiastes, he uses language like, it's better to have this than that. And so when he does that, he's indicating that, you know, some things really do matter. It does matter to live, to have wisdom and to live wisely. It does matter to be content with the handful that you have. Then have a whole bunch of feasting, a lot of great things going on, but not, not have any peace or enjoyment of those things. And so we also looked at some of, the, some of the ways that this book equips us for life and ministry. It helps us to have a biblical worldview. It helps us to see the world from a biblical perspective, the post-Genesis 3 world that you and I live in. You see, God created paradise. He created everything good. And when mankind sinned against God, rebelled against His one command not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, paradise was lost. And humanity was fallen. This creation, this good creation was corrupted. And in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon expounds on the corruption of this creation. The perplexity and the brokenness and the messes that this creation has. It's, it's as if Solomon says, come over to the house and, and, and without tidying up and cleaning up, come over and hang out. Come over and hang out without being a person who cleans up and gets it all looking good so that you can come up. He, he leaves it as it is. Come over, check it out so you can learn something about yourself, about the world, and about God. Life is messy here under the sun. And so he explores that. It teaches us to fear God. This book teaches, gives us fuel for worshiping our all-wise, all-sovereign creator. This book teaches us to enjoy the gifts of God. This, and we're going to look at that. It stirs in us an appreciation for the hope of the gospel. And it gives us wisdom for relating and reaching others. So this book is relevant. It's good and it's helpful. Many of us are not familiar with it. Or, or maybe don't read it like we... It's not our go-to book of the Bible for quiet times, Right? Many folks see this book as a negative book and, 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 and are puzzled. Why is this even in the Bible? He says everything's meaningless. Where's the positive feel good in that? Your life is meaningless. Hevel. Right? Okay. So with that said, let's go ahead and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 1. And before I read, I want to ask you the question. I asked you last week, does your life really matter and why? And I want to ask you this question as we, as we get into the text and as we explore 
here what Solomon has to say. Are you satisfied in life? Are you happy in life? Are you happy in life? And if the answer is no, what do you think? What do you think it is that you need to find that happiness that you long for and you're looking for? What do you think it is that you need? Okay? So Solomon says, I said in my heart, come now. I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this is also vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. And my my heart still guiding me with wisdom. And how to lay a hold of folly that I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in all kinds in all, and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools for which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions and herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and treasure and kings and providences. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem, and all my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered that all that my hands had done, and the toil that I expended in doing, and behold, it was all vanity, striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So here's our big idea. Humanity's search for happiness in creation will not be fulfilled apart from its creator. Humanity's search for happiness in creation will not be fulfilled apart from its creator. You see, there's a longing and a desire in every human heart to be happy. Even within our nation, in the founding of our nation, one of the things that we hold to is the, the liberty to pursue happiness. Right? We, we, we value that freedom to be able to find some kind of happiness in life. And here's Solomon's example of somebody who had it all. He tested it. He tried it. And he found it lacking. He found, even after testing all that he tested in this life, he found that there was still something missing. And isn't this what we've heard over and over from famous people, from actors, from singers, from athletes, people who've made it to the top, so to speak, in the world's eyes, and they get there, and they find themselves lonely and empty, and asking the question like Tom Brady did after winning three Super Bowls, is this all there is? Is this it? Or somebody like Robin, Robin Williams, the actor and comedian, funny guy, has some funny stuff. But in 2014, he took his own life. Why, why are people 
who have, who have possessed so much and, and have accomplished so much in the eyes of the world, why are they losing hope? Why are they giving up? Why are they still empty and dissatisfied and lonely and tormented when they lay their head down at night? Because something is missing. And that something or someone is God. He's the, he, and, and Solomon will, will bring us there here. Let me not get ahead of myself. First, let me just point out how Solomon started with laughter. Okay, jokes with comedy. Okay, he started there. He, he wanted to try that out. Let's see if... Let's see what will happen if I just make myself laugh a lot. Maybe I'll find satisfaction in that. Just laugh a lot. Listen to some jokes. He tried wine, alcohol. That didn't work. That didn't fulfill him. And, and those, those who have had a, a past of addiction know that when you start indulging in substance abuse... And misusing substance, you have, to, you have to have more and more and more to reach that same feeling that you want, once felt. And then once you reach it, you're, you're, you're still satisfied. And Monday morning still comes. And the morning still comes where you wake up with a hangover and a headache. And you're broke. And you're broken. And you've got a mess to fix. A mess to clean up. Right? And so Solomon tried laughter. He tried wine. Art. Built some great things, nature, parks and trees. How many of y'all have a green thumb? You love being outside, enjoy, uh, enjoy being outside and in God's creation. Okay, that's great. I do too. I love it. Money, possessions, music, sex, affirmation, work. Solomon had hundreds of concubines. Hundreds of wives. He had he had more than anybody. Okay? And still he was lacking. Still he was unfulfilled. Still he couldn't find significance and satisfaction in this life. He would agree with McJagger's song, I can't get no satisfaction. He couldn't get it. He couldn't find it. And many, many who've gone after the same path that he has have, have come to that same conclusion. And many of us here today have had our share in experimenting in the things of this world, and we've found it to be lacking. And so here's a couple of things that we can learn. The first is that the pursuit of pleasure doesn't satisfy. It doesn't satisfy. After Solomon had did all those things, he had experienced all those things in this life, uh, he had the, uh, he, it seemed as though he was trying to recreate Eden. Okay, trying to recreate his own paradise, in a sense, in this fallen, broken world. And, 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 he, and he concludes in verse 11, he says, It's all vanity, striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Philip Rickens says that most Americans today experience more pleasure than most people in the history of the world. Yet in spite of our prosperity, and maybe because of it, we still suffer from poverty of soul. The taste of pleasure has grown our appetite for this world beyond satisfaction. Meanwhile, we are still searching desperately for the meaning of life. I can't get no satisfaction. What on earth am I here for? See, this is humanity. 
This is, this is the struggle that, that, that occurs within the hearts of many. And many just ignore it and, and just busy themselves to the realities of this life that, that something's missing. Many try to laugh it off. Many try to drink it off. Many try to work it off and ignore it through busyness. But when we get alone, we're faced with the reality that something's missing. Someone's missing. C.S. Lewis said this, he said, If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Blaise Pascal says, All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they use, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and others avoiding it. It is the same desire in both, to be happy. The motive of every human action, of every man, even of those who hang themselves. They just want to be happy. They want to escape the torment, the despair. Psychotherapist Adam Phillips says, Our excesses are the best clues to our own poverty and our best way of concealing it from ourselves. Philip Ricken says, Pleasure is only safe when God is there. Pleasure is only safe when God is there. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Weight of Glory, says that we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are... Far too easily pleased. We, we settle for so small that's being offered to us in the world. And the things of this world will never satisfy. Children, how many Beyblades is it going to take for you to be happy? Or Legos? Or dolls? Dolls? Or games? Or toys? How many is it going to take for you to be happy? If you're not content and happy with what you got, why do you think getting that next thing will make you happy? Did it? The last time you got that new thing? It's just one more thing. Just one more thing, right? Just a little bit more. How much is enough? The, the wealthy man was asked. Just a little bit more. Just a little bit, little bit more. The book of Ecclesiastes, the book of Ecclesiastes teaches us how to manage the things of this world, how to manage the life that we're in and the things that we have in this world and not look to those things as ultimate things. Because when we get it twisted, when we start looking to the creation to do for us only what the Creator was meant to do for us, we, we commit idolatry and we find ourselves disappointed, disillusioned, broken, and in pain and in struggle. Solomon looked for it in the things of this world, but they couldn't satisfy him. Uh, he, verse verse uh, 12, he says, So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. What can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is, that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, and there is more gain in light than in darkness. So Solomon was a wise person. He experienced wisdom from God. Okay? And even when he tried to find ultimate meaning in, in that wisdom, 
It wasn't enough. It didn't satisfy. He actually said at the end of chapter chapter 1, verse 18, he said this, and I didn't mention this last week, uh, but we read it. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases in knowledge increases in sorrow. It's as if that the more you and I know and learn and, and uh, accumulate wisdom and knowledge, the more painful it is when we, because we're more aware of, of how broken this world is and the things around us and how broken we are. Because we, we know so much, and yet we're so little satisfied. Right? Because we're not made to find ultimate significance and satisfaction from wisdom, from what we know, from possessions, from what we have, from achievements, from what we do. We're made to find our ultimate satisfaction and significance in knowing God and being known by Him. St. Augustine said, Thou hast made us for Thyself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in Thee. Thou hast made us for Thyself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in Thee. We're made for God, the Creator. We're made for relationship with Him. He's designed us for that. And when we try to to create our own design and create our own path and create our own destiny in our own way, we find ourselves destroying what God has, has designed. Making a mess of God's good creation just like Adam and Eve did from the very beginning. Amen? The next thing that Solomon explores is the problem of death. The problem of death. It is inevitable. Okay, listen to what he says. He says, the wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Yet I perceive that the same event happens to them all. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will also happen to me, will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise and said in my heart that this, this also is vanity? For of the wise and, of, and as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance. Seeing that in the days to come, all will have been, been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Can anybody relate to this experience and this feeling? Have you ever been brought to the point where, you, where you've said and, or felt or thought, I hate life, this stinks, why am I here, why is it so hard, I don't understand, what's happening? The book of Ecclesiastes meets us in the nitty gritty of life, meets us in the mess. It's not as tidy and cleaned up as we think it, as, as we think it should be. And, and so it, it, he meets us there right where we're at and he gives us some solutions, thankfully. He doesn't leave us with the problem. But, but it's good for us to feel the tension of the problem. This is, this is one of the things that counselors help people do when, when they bring their problems. When, when somebody comes to a counselor with their problems, they, 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 they help them see that, that, yeah, this world is broken. Yeah, you are broken. Probably a lot more broken than you realize. We're a lot more broken than we realize, yet we're more loved and accepted than we realize at the same time in Christ Jesus. 
So the problem of death is inevitable. Listen to what David Gibson says in his book, Living Life Backward, how, how Ecclesiastes teaches us to live light, live in the light of the end. The preacher will argue that wisdom, pleasure, and work, and possessions are very often the bubbles we live in to ins- insulate us from reality. And this needle, the sharp point he uses to burst our bubble is death. He goes on, he says, only preparing us to die will teach us how to live. Only preparing us how to die will teach us how to live. Ecclesiastes spends a good amount of time talking about death. This is actually one of the books when I preach a funeral. One of my go-to texts is Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 2. It's better to go to funerals than to parties. It's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. Why? Because we're all going to die. And the living should take this to heart. You see, when, we're, when we face the reality of our greatest problem, the reality that we're going to die, it's inevitable. We know we're going to die. We're confronted with, with how we're living now, with the time that we do have. And spending appropriate time focusing on the end of, of where we're going one day, namely to the grave and beyond. Of course, as Christians, we believe that there's more to life than just this, right? If this is all we had in life, we would be the most pitiful people on the face of the earth, the Apostle Paul says, right? But, but we all must face the reality we, that we're going to get old, our bodies are going to fall apart. Think, you know, things are going to happen that we don't like, and we're going to die. And, and so Ecclesiastes faces this. We can ignore it. We can close our eyes. We can shut our ears. We can stick our hand in the set, in, head in the sand and pretend it's not going to happen and not think about the reality. Or we can heed the wisdom that's being offered to us in this book and learn to live well now while we're alive. The living should take it to heart. Blaise Pascal says this, he says, As men have not been able to cure death, misery, or ignorance, they have, not, they have taken to not thinking about these things to become happy. The sole cause of man's unhappiness is that he does not know how to stay quiet in his room. <laughs> That's an interesting comment, but I think it's profound. Warren Wiersbe says this, that the wise man sees that death is coming and he lives accordingly while the fool walks in darkness and is caught unprepared. Let us be those who live with the end in view, who live with eternity in view. And because of Christ, Christ who who answers the riddle that the the preacher sets before us, the riddle of death, the riddle of, of the brokenness and the crookedness of this world. Jesus came and he experienced death for you and me so that we might live. He was raised from the dead. He was risen from the dead on the third day. And he says, we're going to rise with him. And he's going to come back. He's going to make all things new. And so we look forward to that hope. We live, but we live in this tension of the already, not yet. Christ has come. He's brought redemption. He's alive. And he promises us eternal life. To come, a resurrected body, a body that won't fall apart, a world of perfect love and peace, a world where there is justice and righteousness and peace. He's promised us that. 
And so he, he, he brings the solution to the problem, the riddle, the enigma that the preacher Solomon brings before us. Solomon goes on in verse 18. He says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must first leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet, yet he will be master of, of, it, of all for which I have toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my head, my heart, up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is this. Also is vanity and a great evil. What has man for all the toil and the striving of his heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Well, these are heavy words here, right? Profound, heavy words. And, and one of the things that Solomon is saying here, he's looking at work. And, and he's, he's, he's asking, what, what, what does it profit? What's the point? I'm working so hard. And the, and the book of Ecclesiastes and other parts of wisdom literature teaches us not to work our fingers to the bone, not to eat the bread of anxious toil because he gives his beloved sleep. Sometimes we allow ourselves with this ambition to achieve and, 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 and make work everything, become workaholics. And we look to work to be for us what only God was meant to be for us. A savior, a satisfier, our salvation, our strength, our significance. We look to, to work to, to, to fulfill us. And the toil and the frustration that we experience in our work is a result of the fall. You see, God gave mankind work before Adam and Eve sinned. And a part of the, the fall, the result of, of sin, was that work became more difficult and frustrating. There were thorns and thistles, and there was sweat and frustration. Frustration. Thankfully, Solomon doesn't leave us here on negative note. He's very honest and real, and many of us need to, to, to learn from this. You, you see, it's easy in, in Christian circles, to just kind of keep things positive and never address the painful reality that we're walking through in life or the painful reality that others are walking in in life around us. And the book of Ecclesiastes teaches us to be real, to be honest. He's real and honest about, man, this is hard. This is frustrating. This seems meaningless. He acknowledges that. Yeah, we should be optimistic people. We should be very optimistic, but we should also be realists. Those who don't deny the reality of the brokenness of this world. We can face death. We can face the frustrations with work and life and relationships and injustice. And acknowledge, yes, this is wrong. Yes, this is crooked. Yes, this is not right. It's not supposed to be like this. We can acknowledge that. But then we, 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 can, we can embrace it with hope. Knowing that it's not always going to be like this. Knowing that, that there is a Redeemer who has come. And here in Ecclesiastes, uh, verse 24, Solomon gives us a perspective of wisdom. He gives us some, he ends this section on a positive note. 
Aren't you thankful? Are you ready for some positive notes here? Verse 24, he says, There's nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. So he commends work. He commends enjoyment of food. Okay, He commends it. He's not saying, don't do it. He's not so spiritual to say, uh, you know, just stop eating, stop drinking, stop working. Do the spiritual stuff only. Right? No. He, he says there's nothing better for a, for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in all his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, this is key right here, verse 25. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Who can be happy? Who can live life filled with joy apart from a relationship with the, with the, the Almighty, with the Creator? Verse 26, For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and is striving after the wind. So Solomon brings us to a, a positive note here. Namely, enjoy life with God. Enjoy the simple things in life such as food and family and work as a gift from God. Don't try to make them the ultimate things at exclusion to God. Don't try to, do thing, to, to enjoy this creation without any reference or relationship to the Creator. You see, that's what we tend to do with the good gifts that God gives. He gives them as gifts for us to enjoy and we tend to make idols out of them. And they don't satisfy, and they don't bring the significance that we look for within them. Warren Wiersbe said this, he said, Solomon is not advocating eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That is the philosophy of fatalism, not faith. Rather, he's saying, thank God for what you do have, and enjoy it to the glory of God. The Apostle Paul said, whether you eat or drink, do all for the glory of God. We can glorify God in the most simple things of life by receiving them as gifts from God's hand and enjoying them and thanking the one who gave them to us. Right? We can do that for, for His glory. We can honor God in drinking a, a good cup of coffee and eating a good taco or bowl of ice cream or cereal, right? We can glorify Him in that, or or we can dishonor Him in engaging in gluttony, and overeating, and trying to make food fill a space in us that only God was designed to fulfill, right? So David Gibson in his book, Living Life Backwards, says this. He says, some say eat eat and drink and be merry because that's all there is. The preacher says eat, drink and be merry because that's what there is. God has given good things of this world to us and they are their own reward. We can accept in a deep way that we are going to die. That the reality can that reality can stop us from expecting too much from all the good things we pursue. We learn to pursue them for what they are in themselves rather than what we need them to be to make us happy. 
Death reorients us to our limitations as creatures and helps us to see God's good gifts right in front of us all the time, each and every day of our lives. Isn't that good? He goes on, or Zachary Swine in his book, Recovering Eden, says this. He says, the, the best good and the madness under the sun is found when we recover some small resemblance of what we were made for in Eden. We remember that God's, God's gift to humanity has not quit. Even though we have and the world now groans, we remember Adam and Eve's season prior to their fall and learn again to long for that recovery while we, we are migrants here, worn out among the shanties. Isn't that good? So here's, here's New Testament perspective on true gain and true joy. Okay, Jesus taught us this. He said, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where neither thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus taught us the way to experience true, great, true gain. Namely, to send it up. Send it up. Don't try to hoard it here. And don't try to make it the ultimate thing here and make it an idol here. Send it up. And the way that we do that is by being generous with what we have. Notice in, in, in Ecclesiastes 2 there that Solomon's description of his pursuit of pleasure was all I, my, myself. I, me, my. When we're pursuing happiness to the exclusion of the welfare of others or the glory of God, we will find ourselves empty and lacking because we, we find true happiness when, we're, or when we are in right relationship with God and with our fellow man. Amen? With those around us. This is what life is really about. Loving God. Loving people. Or as Ecclesiastes put it, fear, fear God. Live in reverence in all of God and keep His commandments. Jesus asked this question. So in, in response to... Um, just or in thinking about Solomon's question, what does man have to gain for all his toil under the sun? Think about what Jesus asked in a similar question in Mark 8, 34, 35 and 36. He said, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What if somebody has it all? They have it all. They have the power, the money, the position, the fame, the honor, the achievements. Their house is on HDTV. If Solomon's house was, was here today, it would be on HDTV. Like, we'd be watching it. We'd be sitting around thinking, man, that'd be cool to have a pool like that. To have that garden that he has. We'd be in awe drooling. Like, man, I want to go see that. Right? And, 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 and that, we watch things like that. We're entertained by Fixer Upper and, and shows like that where we see just beauty and we see beautiful uh, places to dwell in. And, and yet they don't satisfy us. True gain is found in right relationship with God and with others. Uh, Paul put it like this. He said, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor set their hopes in the uncertainty of riches, but on God 
who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. It's not wrong to enjoy what you have. Okay? Just, it's not wrong to have stuff. Just don't let stuff have you. It's not wrong to have possessions, but don't let your possessions possess you. And if somebody messes with them and you go ballistic because somebody messes with your stuff, it might be an indicator that it's become an idol in your heart and your life. Right? Regardless of how small or big it may seem. It's all hevel. Right? So, so use it for the glory of God. You Enjoy it. Do good. Verse 18, he says... Uh, they, they are to do good and be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, that they may take a hold of what is truly life. Do you want to experience what life is really about? True, true meaning in life, fulfillment of life? Do you want to experience treasures in heaven? Do you want to be able to say, uh, my labor is not in vain? All, this thing, all these things, that I'm, this work that I'm doing, these achievements that I'm doing, do you want to have the conviction that what you're doing is not in vain, that your life is not just hevel, vanity? Then live for the glory of God and for the good of others. Let the love of Christ motivate you. Let the grace of God energize you. I'll finish with this last quote here. How do we glorify God right here where we are? For where we are is filled with meaninglessness, madness, and empty pleasures. By recovering Eden and learning to find true gain in the witness of God among the ordinary things. We will learn to believe that there is nothing better than to have a place to inhabit, a thing to do in that place, and some people to share it with. With God, such small things are happy and gainful. We taste again what Adam and Eve once felt in the garden in Eden before they lost their thirst for the sacred mundane and made a wreck of it all. That line struck me this week. By recovering Eden and learning to find true gain in the witness of God among the ordinary things. Do you consider the witness of God your true gain and true joy. The reality that, that whether you abound with stuff and great things in this life or whether it's really hard and you have very little but you're making it, but you have God, do you see that as true gain? So, the psalmist Asaph did in Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven but you? There's none that I desire on earth besides you. My heart and flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. King David did in Psalm 16. He said the Lord, the boundary lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Surely I have a good inheritance. He says in verse 11 of Psalm 16 in your presence is the fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Do you want pleasures forevermore? You want fullness of joy, satisfaction? You're only going to find it in relationship with God. In His presence. At His right hand. And God is, as John Piper says, John, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied 
in Him. God is glorified in us when we find our satisfaction in Him. Our joy comes from Him and being in relationship with Him. I remember as a young Christian, I've shared this before here. I'll share it again since we've got some new folks. But as a young Christian, about 17 years old, I was thinking deep thoughts at night, thinking about life and the meaning of life and thinking about eternity and what happens after we die. I knew, I was convinced, I'm going to be with God in heaven forever. But I had this, this disturbing thought that came to my mind. And then the thought went like this. What if it gets boring in heaven? What am I going to do for ever? Eternity! What if it gets boring? And, and the thought was brought me to my knees. And I felt a moment of fear and despair. I thought, man, boredom for eternity? That's scary. And I fell on my knees. And as soon as I dropped to my knees, the presence of God filled my room. And I felt the presence of God. I felt the witness of God, the nearness of God met me right there in my questioning, in my fear, in my doubt or despair. God met me there and I got this huge smile on my face. And you know what I said to God? I said, God, I can spend eternity in this life. I'm sorry. I can spend eternity with you. I I smiled real big. I felt the joy of God's presence, His nearness. And I was reminded that there's a lot about heaven and eternity that I don't know and don't understand. But I know I'm going to be with you, God. And it's going to be good. And you're an infinite God who has infinite wisdom and power and love and joy and pleasure for us to experience forevermore and evermore and ongoing forever and ever. So why do we settle for such small fleeting things that are passing away when God offers us Himself, His nearness? And so let us enjoy the simple gifts that He's given us, such as food and family and work. Let us enjoy those things with Him. Let our hearts be turned to gratitude and praise towards Him for those good gifts. For from Him comes every good and perfect gift. They come from His hand. And so let's acknowledge that all the good things we have in this life come from Him. Let's enjoy them. Let's thank Him for them. And let's hold those things loosely. Because there's coming a day when all those things are going to be taken away. And the life that we have here will be gone. That's right. But we can send it up. And we got eternity with Him. And so here's some application in closing. Aim to have God at the center of your pursuit of happiness. Aim to have God at the center of your pursuit of happiness. It was George Mueller who said, um, the first business of every day is to make my soul happy in the Lord. The first business of every day is to make my soul happy in the Lord. Is that is that your aim daily? To find your happiness or joy? I think we like to use the word joy because uh, typically we think of happiness as a very shallow thing. Something if our if our joy or happiness is based on the things of this world, 
It's shallow, and it's, it's, it's flickle. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be easily taken from us. But when our joy, our happiness, is based on heaven and our relationship with God, then it can't be taken from us here, no matter what happens. No matter if we go through a Job-like experience, we can respond like Job. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. My Redeemer lives. We, and, and we will live with Him. And we have hope even when everything is stripped from us in this life. We have hope in this life because we have Him with us. We have His presence with us. Not just in eternity when we get there in heaven, but we have His presence with us now. His promised presence. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. So avoid the distraction. Avoid the distraction and devastation of fleeting pleasures. Okay? The fleeting pleasures of sin. Hebrews 11 says that Moses chose to suffer affliction with the people of God rather than enjoying the, the fleeting pleasures of sin. They're distracting and they're devastating. Sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and make you pay more than you want to pay. It promises so much, but delivers so little. And so avoid the dangers, the distractions, the devastation of the fleeting pleasures of sin. And one of the ways to fight sin is to find your joy in God. When you're finding your joy in God, when God satisfies your heart, you're less, you're less vulnerable to the temptations of sin to lure you away because you're content in your relationship with Him. You don't need that fleeting pleasure of sin. you got God, and He's enough. And lastly, receive and enjoy the simple things in life as gifts from Him. Recognize from whom they come and let your heart be directed to Him. I'm going to close with a couple lines from a poem by a guy named C.T. Studd. He said, Two lines I heard one day traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart and, and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice. Bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years, each with burdens, hopes, and fears. Each with its clay, clays I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. Only one life will, will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep, in joy and or sorrow thy word to keep. 
faithful and true to what air is a strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life twill soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Only let my love with fervor burn, and from the world now let me turn. Living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I hear the call, I know I'll say, twas worth it all. Mm-hmm. Only one life will soon be passed, only what's done. For Christ will last. That's good. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the reality check, the reminder that we need through the book of Ecclesiastes. And we thank you that it doesn't contain the whole story, that there is more. There is more. But it points us to and prepares us for the more of the gospel of Jesus Christ, your Son, coming to be the answer to the great riddle of death and meaninglessness in this life. I pray that you would wake up any sleeping souls here among us where we have been lured asleep with the fleeting pleasures of sin. Wake us up where our hearts have been weighed down with the cares of this life and lust for other things and carousing, wake us up. Where we have been blinded by the glamours of this world and our eyes can't see the beauty of who you are, wake us up and open up our eyes. Teach us to live for what matters most. Teach us to live for your glory, for the good of others. Teach us, God, to find enjoyment in the simple things of life and be content with you and and the table that you've spread for us. Open our eyes to see what we have in you. And give us the grace of finding enjoyment of you and what you've given us. We say, take the world, but give us Jesus. In the morning when I rise, in the morning when I rise, in the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. Give me Jesus, give me Jesus, you can have all this world, give me Jesus. May the Lord bless you and keep you, may the Lord make his face shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you. May he lift up the light of his countenance upon you. May he give you his peace. If anybody's here that needs prayer, you'd like to talk, 
you want me to pray with you, I'd love to pray with anybody who needs some prayer. You guys have a great day.